0: Welcome to another episode of From the Hip with me, Benji Moody. My guest is one of my favorite people on the planet, a consummate musician who has experienced the highs and lows of international superstardom, a rock and roll warrior survivor who has remained true to her heart and art. She is, as her song says, the last one standing, and not only standing, but forever moving forward creatively. A singer of songs, a teller of stories. Live from Music City, Nashville, Tennessee, my friend, singer-songwriter, Cindy Alter. Hello, Sins. Woo!
1: <laughs> what an intro, burn. really. I mean, that blew me away. Thank you.
0: I wrote it specially for you.
1: <laughs> I know you did, but thank you so much for all of that. It's beautiful. So,
0: thank musicians you. in training can often be recognized early in their development. Like future drummers have been known to tap on tables and floors incessantly. Fingers take on a life of their own when guitarists play play air guitar in front of the mirror. And singers preen and dream with a hairbrush and all in front of the mirror. Can you remember the first time that you realized that, hey, I want to be a singer?
1: Um. Firstly, I never, ever thought about the star part of it. Mm-hmm. It never crossed my mind, and it still doesn't really cross my mind, believe it or not, because I just wanted to sing. And however that was going to look, whatever that was going to sound like, um, I was a very, very young baby. My mother said that when she was playing songs in the car on the radio, I used to hum the song. She thought, How does this, like, two-year-old know the song? It's not possible. So I was already hearing music, but when I was sort of also about five or so, they would take us to Musenberg Dahl. We'd go for the, the December holidays and there would be talent contests and they'd put me on stage. Of course, my grandmother thought I was an absolute star anyway. Like, so put Cindy on stage. Put, let Cindy sing. Let Cindy sing. And so I think that that's really where it started, like as a young, young, young girl.
0: And, and what were you listening to? I mean, those, the, what, what kind of songs we, would you sing when you did that?
1: Well, in those days, it was sort of whatever was on the radio. We didn't have TV, as we know. We had radio. So it was Elvis Presley. It was the pop songs of the day. Later on, only pop stuff, of course. And then a little later, I started getting into rock stuff. I mean, I was into Uriah Heep, Deep Purple, um, Grand Funk, Led Zeppelin. That was my big go-to and then on the other side were the songwriters, the James Taylor, mm-hmm. the Carly Simon, um, Carol King, Cat Stevens was a big influence on my life. Well,
0: he, I mean, you've mentioned all of them, all great songwriters. You yourself are a great songwriter. Yes. Can you remember the first song that you wrote?
1: I do. It was very silly, I think. It was, I was about maybe 15 or so. I don't remember the actual song. But it was a start, you know. It was something that I went, oh, I wrote a song, you know. And it was totally original. It didn't sound like anything else I'd ever heard. And from then on, I think it just kept going and going and going and, of course, growing as a songwriter as you grow into your art, you know. And now I think I'm writing fantastic songs.
0: That you are. When you were a teenager, did you – form or join bands? What I mean, you just spoke about the rock thing. Was that the, the beginning, yes. the embryo of performing live, doing rock?
1: Performing live for me was not that. I used to go. I had a guitar teacher when I was about 14. His name was Eric Solomon. He used to play with Mel Mel and okay. Julian. And Julian's just yeah. passed away right now. So Mel, Mel, and Julie Mel Miller—it was another Mel and Julian Laxton. they used to play in a, in a in a like folk band. And he used to take me to the Troubadour, some Dunkin' Donut place you know, or whatever the it was. Donuts, I was wow. a kid, and he would take me there, and I would play. And then he took me to Des and Dawn Soiree. Do you remember yeah. they used to have those soirees? And that was my start. So singing. Folky, then getting into more pop, and then at school is when I joined a band. They were most of them were out of school. They were all varsity boys, and that's when we were playing heavy rock.
0: Who <laughs> really influenced you as a singer in rock?
1: You know, from way way back, the the girl from the from the Seekers.
0: Oh, Judith Durham.
1: She had a tone. She had a way of singing. If anybody influenced me, well, I didn't ever say I want to sing like that, but I used to listen to that. And that voice for me was probably one of the best
0: Very pure. I mean, um, songs like A World of Our Own and and The the Carnival Is Uh, Over.
1: The Carnival Is Over is still one of my favorite. When I hear that song, I just start weeping. My parents took me to see them when they came to South Africa. And I was, like, mesmerized. I just sat there with my mouth it's open. It's quite
0: interesting because I thought you were going to say somebody like Janis Joplin um, would have been No,
1: Janis came later. <laughs> Janis did come later and later also hot. Anne Wilson, also one of my favorites. Also a favorite
0: brilliant singers. singer. I mean, Ann Wilson doing Led Zeppelin is, is, is another story altogether.
1: Stairway to heaven, that was like a whoa. I saw her live here last year. She's still absolutely fantastic.
0: So here you were a teenager. You were working in bands. Mm-hmm. Were you just playing like sessions or were you, were you going into clubs at that point and, and, and playing? What, what sort of path did you take with the early bands?
1: Well, as I said, I used to do coffee shops and little venues. I used to do – I was still at school when I was doing hotel bars You know, I'd go into the hotel and I'd sing in the bar all night, and I was like 16 or something ridiculous. Um, The band that I was in, the rock band, we used to play like school functions and proms. What do they call them? Yeah, sessions, proms, sessions, uh, sessions, yeah. yeah. You know, and we did sessions at at big venues like, you know, Lemon Squeezer and all those kind of things. We'd open for another band and stuff like that.
0: You must have had a lot of fun back then.
1: It was so innocent. When I say innocent, there was no agenda. We were just playing, and that's why I never saw stars. It was not like, oh, I want to be a big star, and I want everybody to love me. For me, it was always, I just want to play music and be there doing it.
0: And and when you left school, I mean, did you have another job, or did you go straight into pro-professional
1: no, I, um, I wanted to leave school early. I wanted, I was like, I'm done with this, Daddy. And my Daddy said, no, you will finish your matric, then you can do what the hell you want. So I was like, okay. So I was like, ah, hold on. When I left school, I think I worked in a clothes shop for about five minutes, and I worked at a friend's. A <laughs> Turn and Tender just opened in Greenside. They were friends of mine, the Aaron brothers. And they said, hey, come and be a waitress. <laughs> and that also lasted five minutes. And then I was offered a job. I don't know how it came about, I can't remember. Somebody said, oh, there's this guy who's got a record company and he's looking for somebody
0: to work there. Johnny Gibson. I remember Johnny Gibson, yeah.
1: Johnny Gibson and his sister Marie, they used to sing together and they used to sing separately. They were country music in those days.
0: That's right.
1: Johnny had a a recording studio where he was recording other artists and I went to be secretary. (laughs) And I used to type his letters for him, and eventually he said, I heard that you sing. And I said, yeah. He said, come in the studio. Let's find a song for you to sing. And he found a song for me to sing. It was called Schoolboy. Very silly, but it was fun. (laughs) And he recorded it and released it, and suddenly I was like, oh, Cindy Alter, new face, new new, new, uh, star in the making. And then – Bobby Angel needed somebody to open for him on his tour. So I joined him on his tour. I went touring around the country. His band backed me. I was the opening act. Then I came back, and then the Bats and Mel Miller were going on a border tour. They said, hey, we heard about you. Would you come and be the girl? I mean, with all those guys at the border, I mean, I was the only chick. It was crazy. Um, So I did that. And just before I did that, I got a phone call. I think it was Trevor Gordon. He said, look, there's these girls that are looking for a guitarist and a vocalist for their band, like a backing singer. I said, okay. And I went to audition. It was a girl called Glenda, a girl called Ingi, and a girl called Lee. And they were auditioning for an all-girl band. And they heard me sing, and they said, yeah, Yo, you're good. Can you join? I said, I'd love to join. I said, but I'm going on tour for a week, so – I won't be able to join right away. Oh, no, 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 Glenda says. No, we're starting rehearsals right now, so you won't be able to be in the band. I said, okay. So I start walking out. She says, but can we borrow your microphone? Because I had my own microphone. I said, no, only if I can be in the band, you can borrow my microphone. She said, oh, okay, you can be in the band. And that's how I got into clout.
0: And at that point, it was just, it was the four of you. You had no manager. You had- it was the
1: four of us. Jenny was. Um she was auditioned that day as well, and they took Jenny. So the two last two members came in that same day. I think
0: you were called, um, you weren't called Clout originally, you were called Queen Bee, weren't you?
1: Queen Bee. <laughs> Glenda was mad for Barbara Streisand, mm-hmm. and we were going to be the next Barbara Streisand band, and we were going to be called Queen Bee.
0: I mean, you went straight into rehearsals and everything. This is before you met Graham Banks, yes. right?
1: Yes, we started playing first, right, and and then and Glenda had been in the band Pendulum, and Graham Beggs was their manager. She said, "I've got a manager. I had a manager in my band, and we, you know, he wants to hear the band, so he came round and heard the band. Of course, he saw gold. He um, he knew there was possibility, and he started." Getting into the production and the development of clout, changing the name firstly. We don't like that name. Queen Bee's not mm. the name. Bandying names around, and he, him and his cronies, his friends, <laughs> used to talk about, gee, she's got a clout, eh? She's got a clout. Oh. So, you know yeah. what I'm saying? So, it became that was the name. And he also brought in Mick
0: Jade. Oh, the songwriter, Mick Jade
1: the songwriter who wrote the songs for the villagers and stuff like that. Mick was brilliant. And Mick came in and started developing us, hearing harmonies, putting us because we could all play, mm. but we couldn't play together. We weren't cohesive. It wasn't a natural thing for us just to do. It just worked, you know. Were,
0: were you at that point, the five of you, you, Glenda, Jenny, Lee, and Inge, were you tight with each other, uh, um uh, Um, I mean, there's some strong personalities in in Cloud. You and and Ingi, who's always been very very headstrong.
1: Very Very headstrong. And Glenda, oh, she's an Aries. You know,
0: she's like. So, so did that cause a a bit of tension or uh, was it a sense of being together as a kind of almost like a tribe? You against the world, the five of you sticking together.
1: And that really was it, Benji. I don't believe once in all those years that we were together that the girls ever really bashed heads. We were, we would work things out. If, you know, Ingrid said something to me that I didn't like, I'd go back at her. But it was always very quick and very done. It was nothing. There was no bad vibes being held in the band. We were always just us against the world. It was. And especially later when we were not being paid, that we we were all in this together. We all knew we were all in the same boat. So
0: 1977, you know, turns out to be quite a landmark year for you. I mean, you've had yes. experience in the studio. Glenda had a bit of experience in the studio with Pendulum. Um, yes. You've met Graham Beggs. Um, uh, yes. Graham Beggs' role in, 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 in the whole thing, Mastermind, Sevengali manipulator uh,
1: Svengali manipulator all those things, but brilliant. I cannot ever say that Graham was not so good. he was a great producer, he knew what he wanted. If he'd just not been financially driven, mm-hmm. the band broke into the states we broke into we went onto the top. the the billboard Mm. top 100 and number 62 or something like that. That was when Beggs, if he was smart, and he was smart, but he just missed that boat, that's when he should have said, you know what, let's renegotiate the contract and let's go into America Mm. hard. Because he knew Mm. we weren't happy. I was throwing tantrums all the time, and when I say tantrums, I was just saying, we are not getting paid. Where is our money? We're coming back from tour, and I'm living in my parents' house, and I don't have a car and i've got 5 grand to to my name and i'm a, a, a superstar selling millions of records and playing to 45,000 60,000 seaters across germany and holland and and i'm coming home with nothing mm. all of us
0: i guess that that's a lesson for young artists these days that that it's it's not Great wise job. to have one individual as producer publisher and manager um no, handling everything not.
1: That was a mistake, that we should have had a manager. We did have a road manager later, which was Mike Fuller, but he wasn't a manager. It was just a road road, manager, which was like from the fine pan into the
0: fire. (laughs) So let's roll back a little bit and talk about Graham and, and grooming the band. Um, mm. and working on songs and imaging. Yes. Um, yes. Because originally you had those five different personalities. There was no continuity oh, yeah. in terms of the no look continuity. of
1: Clown. Oh. Um, oh, we were all like a mishmash. We were like a bun- bunch of ragamuffins. <laughs> we really were. we just wear what we want to wear. Ingi loved to wear shorts. Glenda liked her sexy things. Jenny was more demure. Lee was more demure. I was more demure, believe it or not. I was never the one also to just you know, throw my boobs out and stuff like that. was not my thing. But um so grooming-wise, they brought in Sue Keel.
0: Oh, she just passed away recently model. as well. She just passed
1: away. Beautiful woman. Lovely woman. She came and helped us with some styling. Uh Ronald Sassoon, his clothes, he started giving us some clothes. It was a bit boring, but at least was a start that we started looking like a band, and when we went overseas the first time, we saw what the girls were wearing there, and we were like frumpy little frumps, Macy's from Johannesburg. <laughs> you know, I'm telling you.
0: Well, the early video yeah. of, of 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 Clout on, on 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 German television and Dutch television, I mean, it hasn't formed into. There's no definitive look at that particular point, and song you were working with Graham. I mean, there must've been other songs before substitute, was it? No. Okay. Substitute
1: was going to be the first thing. So straight, straight
0: out of the bat, that was going to be the one.
1: Straight out of the bat. Let's record something. And substitute was the first song brought forward because I I know, see, Graham was also big friends with Terry Dempsey, also gone. Um, Terry was a very good songwriter. Terry wrote our second single. You've got all of me. Um, But, He brought something from Terry, but it sort of just didn't stand at the time. Substitute was an old Righteous Brothers song, as you know, and uh, Graham's wife, Christine, she loved that song. She said, there's something about the song that I think they can do. When we went into the studio, it was either going to be me or Glenda as the lead singer, because at that time, Glenda was the lead singer. So I was still backup singer. Mick Jade had heard my voice, and he said, I want you to sing some songs. So I'd already started. Glenda would sing a song. I would sing a song. We would trade off and stuff like that. So when it was time to go in the studio, Graham got Glenda to sing it, and then he got me to sing it and chose the my The rest character. is history. <laughs> <laughs> the rest is now history. while you were
0: developing um songs and everything. I mean, were you clubbing? Were you guys gigging around at that particular Yes,
1: spot? we were gigging. We did the branch office. Oh, wow. um, yeah, we would open for guys, and we were like, still look, the guys were coming there to see five girls. They didn't care if we could play or not, but we wanted to be legitimate. Well, at least I did, Jenny did, Ingi did. Glenda, we all wanted to be legitimate. We didn't want to be a bunch of crap playing girls who just looked good and the guys were coming to go, you know, it was ridiculous. So we wanted to have some kind of credibility and we worked hard for that. I mean, Jenny was a really great lead player. She played piano as well. Lee could hold their bass together totally. Ingi was an excellent drummer.
0: Mm, she was.
1: And Glenda was a fantastic keyboard player. I was a great rhythm guitarist. So it it just everything started working.
0: Thing about substitute we- is the first time you hear yeah. it, then that chorus yeah. comes in. Yeah. I mean, did you know at that point when you cut it and you you know, you sat back and listened to the playback that this no. is gonna be a hit?
1: No. We I was I was so in the moment. Also Graham wanted to have a little bit of a black feel to it. Mm-hmm. And and that's how I feel. he said to me, think of it like a like an African song almost. That was how I sang it. I sang it with that vibe. I know that doesn't sound like, hey, it doesn't sound anything like an African song, but there was a groove. There was a certain groove to it. <speaking in the background> <speaking in the background> you know, it was mm. like da da da, da 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 It's such a an African line, that that bass line. Mm. You know, it was just that groove, and it became a huge uh, African hit. But for me, I felt that groove, and I'd been in my housekeeper's room for years, ever since I was a kid, dancing to her music. I loved that music. I just felt it so rhythmic, you know, and – um so I, I just I liked it. I thought, wow, this is this is fabulous. But I didn't realize till later when they first released it, and he played it in a club. He says, let's go to this club. at can't remember. Maybe it was Plum Crazy, one of the big clubs, and they played it for the first time over the speakers, and everybody just went mad. They said, here's a new song from a South African all-girl band. Clout, blah blah blah. I can't remember. Maybe it was Syros even. I can't remember. But everybody just like the whole room, and I'm getting goosebumps right now because I remember that feeling like, wow. I didn't think it's a hit because I didn't think like that, but I thought,
0: Wow! This is us. We've done something really good. Well, that's the anatomy of a. That's an anatomy Uh, of a hit single. Is 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 that hook? It is. When that hook kicks in, I remember because I was around. I was already at that time. I was already, you know, in the industry. I remember hearing, you you know, wow, that's going to be a smash. So the single goes out. It 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 was immediate here. It, It just it happened straight away. Immediate. And then it blows up. Blows up in Europe, blows up in the UK, um, charts in the US. um, Mm -hmm. 10 million singles, something like that, sold. Um, It must have been so exciting for you.
1: It was. I mean, firstly, you know, everybody knew the song. So everywhere you went and everybody knew our faces by then because we'd been to Europe. You know, at the time, Benji, South Africans were banned everywhere. Mm. You know that. Mm. And eventually the Germans were screaming, the, the Dutch were screaming, the U.K. was screaming and saying, we've got to get this band here. They've got to be on top of the pops. They've got to be on our TV shows because in those days the TV shows made the singles. It was radio and those big TV shows, yeah. Musikladen, disco, pop, you know, music pop, blah, whatever they were, and, of course, top of the pops. Um so we had to go, and they were saying they have to come. And this is what I say about that. The power of music is greater than anything.
0: Yeah, I mean, the TV shows were critical. I mean, did you do Top of the Pops? Because, I mean, the, the single yes. went two, two in the UK. Number two. Yeah. yeah. So did you go we live on Top of the Pops? To.
1: We weren't allowed to go live. Oh. We weren't allowed to pick up an instrument. Oh, wow. Because the union,
0: music the M-U, yeah. British
1: Union, not let us. So they used a Dutch video from one of the TV shows in Holland, and they said we were a Dutch band.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, of course, it was even as early as 78. I mean, there was resistance to South African artists, no matter where. Did you find that... That was generally located in the UK or did you find there was resistance in continental Europe, France, Germany, Ireland? the only
1: people, the only people that were resistant physically, as in the Union said no, was the UK. Those were the only ones that said no. All the rest of them said yes. We we didn't even have a lot of resistance from other artists saying, you know, you're from South Africa, blah except I had one little screaming match with uh, the singer from Boney and the girl, We were in the canteen of the TV show, Music Laden, and we were all going to be playing, but we all went to the canteen and ate, and then we would go get dressed and get ready for the. We'd have all our rehearsals first during the day, and then we'd go get ready, and then the show would start at like seven o'clock at night or whatever it was. And she shouted across the the canteen, you enslaving black people! I said, I've never enslaved a black person in my life. And she was like, woo, 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 and I just walked off because I was not going to go and get into a political thing because it was never, for us especially, I said, music and politics are two totally different things. We can talk about politics in our songs, but do not ask us to come and stand up and, and you know, talk about politics on on TV shows and stuff because it's just – we don't come from there. Yes, we have we have uh, opinions, but musicians just want to play music. We talk, mm. we peace and love, man. <laughs> you know.
0: At that time, I mean, clout were really riding high internationally. Yes. You were playing on uh, shows with Dire Straits, with um, Blondie, with Thin Lizzy. Um, These were all the TV shows right. that we used to do. Yeah. Right. Who, so who was the wildest we were- band that you encountered? <laughs> Uh, uh, at those at those TV dates.
1: you will not believe this, village people. No. Oh my God, we used to party so hard with these guys. Okay, okay. So they were really like the party animals of of life. Then also Thin Lizzie. Oh yeah.
2: <laughs> the Lizzie in it yeah. and
1: I got onto a party thing. <laughs> <laughs> It started in my hotel room where he finished every booze in the booze cabinet. He drank everything. And then we moved on to dinner with the record company and clubbing afterwards. So maybe the Lizzie were our best party band. It was sad because,
0: I mean, it claimed claimed Phil's life. I mean, you know. It did claim his life. It
1: It claimed his life. Didn't
0: really know when to stop. You know, people think that. that, The life of a successful band like Clout and the touring is all wine and roses, the ideal life. But it's not, is it?
1: It's not at all, because the only pleasure really is when you're on stage. Up until when you're on stage, it is crap. You're on a bus, you're touring, you're driving, you're exhausted. You have not had enough sleep from the night before you are miserable. You get to the sound check, you're tired, but you've got to do a sound check. You do a sound check, then you've got like 40 minutes, if you're lucky, to to go and get dressed and doled up and get ready for the show. By the time you get onto that stage, it's like, whew, you know, let me just take a minute here. Um, nowadays, especially with the very big artists, they got it very different. they got the most magnificent tour buses. They've got their personal chefs and their the yoga teacher, and the whole gashmere. We had a little freaking thing that looked like a school bus that we would tour in Germany with, literally. Didn't have a toilet on it. We would sometimes have to stop at the side of the road because I had to pee all the time. <laughs> I'm just being a peer the whole life. <laughs> and we would like, oh, God, Cindy's got to stop. And I'd go behind some truck somewhere <laughs> So hard laugh. Definitely hard life. When you're young, easier, of course. When you get older, it's got to be a bit more luxury, you know. But, I mean, you the high of over.
0: performing is, is what it's all about. And in
1: the low of the next day yeah. of, of, of coming down and it's like, okay, um, I'm a real person now. I've just got to be a human being, a normal human, until I get back on that stage again. So I used to suffer from some kind of depression, but it was a normal it wasn't like, oh, I had a special depression, my own kind of bipolar depression, whatever it was not that it was from the highs to the lows that I didn't know how to deal with. nobody does
0: no I mean, I've been on the road with 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 bands male male bands, and it's crazy, yes, five Ooh. girls together, oh my God, you must have had <laughs> you must have a lot of stories
1: <laughs> listen, you know Iggy and I. We were called the terrorists and Lee and Jenny were the, were the tea, tea ladies. So Inky and I would go and party all night and come back in the morning and and Jenny and Lee were going for breakfast and we'd say morning, hi. And then we were going to go sleep. (laughs) So it was always this kind of craziness. Um, but we all had fun. We all had fun in our own ways. That worked for us, you know. I knew I couldn't party all night if I was singing the next Mm. day. Otherwise, I'd lose my voice. Mm. So I had to be very disciplined about that. So if it was a night off and you've got two nights off, say two before you get your next show, then we go Mm. out and
0: jog. So at that time with the European tours and coming back to South Africa, then going back to Europe, Mm. um, Mm. right at the pinnacle of all of that, Glenda decides to Mm. leave.
1: Yes. What was that about? Well, Glenda decided to leave after our first big TV show tour.
0: Oh, okay. She
1: left early on. She didn't do any live shows with us. Okay. Comes back to South Africa and Glenda says, I'm getting married to Bernie Miller. I'm getting married to Bernie and I'd like him to join the band. And we're like, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, not, we're not getting Bernie in the band. Mm-hmm. Well, then I'm leaving. Okay, you're leaving. So that was kind of sort of the thing at the time also the the band circus had played on most of our our albums
2: mm.
1: you know we could have done it but we would have been too slow those boys I could just nail it. Great quick, quick. We need that album out now, mm. not in six months' time after you have guys. And it would have just taken us a bit more time. That's all.
0: Yeah, I mean, Sandy's I a great know, guitar player. Play. Bones, bless him, R.I.P. Bones there, became man. the MD. You know, yeah.
1: he, he was our musical director. He was spot on. Bones was outstanding to have there. Sandy was also just a brilliant musician. And that just complimented the band. And, of course, everybody's like, oh, you're not a girl band anymore. And we said, so what?
0: It do not matter.
1: Care. You know, we want to be a band. First album, Substitute was on, Save Me. Right. All those songs. Six of the Best was our second oh, was album. Six of the Best, second, And right. we really developed, you know.
0: Um, six of the Best, you probably would, wouldn't get away with that cover these days. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
1: No, but it was lovely when we were doing it. We were at a school, I, can't remember, I think we were at Rodine School or something like that. It was just divine. We had so much fun, really. Well, people it was were,
0: naughty, naughty. People, yeah, it was a naughty cover, yeah. But so innocently naughty. Yeah. It wasn't gross or pornographic. No, no. It was just tongue-in-cheek, a <laughs> little bit naughty. I mean, a lot of people, <laughs> when you say clown, they go, oh, Substitute. But, I mean, you had other massive singles. Save me, singles me was was massive. Huge. Um, you know. Save
1: Me got so big in Germany that we were playing live in Dortmund at a 16,000 seat, I'll never forget this, and we finished the set with Save Me, and they screamed so loudly that we had to come and do Save Me again, and then we got off, and they screamed again so loudly and so much that we had to do Save Me, and we did Save Me three times.
0: Wow. that was insane. What intrigues me about, about the albums is that there's very, very little self-written material. Yeah. You know, was was that because Graham Beggs wanted to stick to a tried and true formula of cover versions from publishers, from, you know, which were all inevitably on Breakaway Music. Uh, uh, Yes, of course. Everything (laughs) was on Breakaway Music. Including the the (laughs) couple that you guys recorded.
1: One was, um, gonna get it to you mm-hmm.
0: tomorrow. It was a single,
1: yeah. and tomorrow tomorrow was a very big song for me. It was written about my boyfriend Tommy, oh. Tommy Slav, yeah, Sornik, who was in the wrangle. Oh. Tommy and I were together for quite a long time, and he was my true love, I suppose. Uh, but I knew I was uh, that we were it wasn't going to work because of my traveling and me being overseas and all the stuff going on. Um, but point being that I wanted to write more I just told Trevor Rabin that I would sign a contract with him, he wanted to sign me as a country artist Mm -hmm. like early days and I thought I'd signed a contract but I didn't, so I was nervous to record anything in case it was going to be like oh you're not allowed to record anything with anybody else, Mm -hmm. so that's what I told Graham, but it could have easily been sorted and i I was starting to write more and more. And, um, yeah, it, was, it just wasn't, I wasn't encouraged. Mm.
0: And then Lee left the band as well. I mean, she, she yeah, went that got was married. Later. Yeah.
1: So later it was towards the end because we were already
0: schismed, right? We yeah. were
1: feeling so used. I had an interview once and I said, I feel like the puppet. And he's the puppet master, and he puts us in the box at night, and then he just pulls us out, and we like,
2: ah, la, 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 la,
1: you know. And he'd also lost interest by then. Graham had lost interest. He was working with the rag dolls, mm-hmm. so he didn't even come on tour anymore. That's when when Mike Fuller started becoming our tour manager and coming on tour with us. Things were changing, and. I think, listen, coulda, shoulda, woulda, we can all talk about that for till, sure. till the day we die. But I think oh. if Biggs had just gone, you know what, let's get a better contract for you girls, let's talk, let's get some money coming in for you, um, and let's see where we can go, because this band could have still been going.
0: Well, interesting you, you say that about the money, because you do speak to people about cloud Oh, they must be millionaires. I mean, <laughs> was there money?
1: Yeah. No money, no money. I think we each got about 20, maybe 20,000 rand over four years. If that, if that, probably about 15, and, 18,000.
0: Nothing since then.
1: Well, we never got anything from, from Beggs really at the end. Once he'd given us that sort of initial little payment, mm. we never saw any money after that. Um, he since has, um, he sold the masters to a, a record company, a retro record company in um, Belgium mm-hmm. or Holland. Mm-hmm. I think it's Holland. And uh, Barry Guy, who was married to Lee, he was our A&R guy in, in, in Germany. That's, That's right, where we yeah. met them. And um, he was with Deutsche Grammophon. Um, he went to speak to them and he said, look, you know, Cloud never got paid. Would you consider giving them a little something. So they've been giving us a little something since the 90s, which is pretty cool.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that.
1: I'm also glad to hear that because, that, you know, the karma story, <laughs> sometimes the person who deserves the karma doesn't necessarily get it.
0: Mm, so mm. No, Karma's a bitch, eh?
1: Karma is a bitch, and then you die.
0: <laughs> so the band split. Here you are. You've now spent... <laughs> Most of your your life in the earlier part of your uh, early twenties um in a massive band yeah with with huge experience band split you're on your own what mm. what's next then
1: First, I had to get up off the floor. <laughs> I was so emotionally hurt by all of it um, because oh. This was my dream, to, to be on stage and to do what I was doing. And it was taken away from me and all of us. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to move on. And nobody, not one person in the music industry in South Africa, nor in Europe, approached me to do anything. I was like poison. I found out later that Graham Beggs had told all the record companies when they said, why is Cloud breaking up? Cindy's a drug addict and she's an alcoholic and all stuff like that. Okay. So I found that out later because I'd actually written a letter to one of the guys at at, um, Deutsche Grammophon. We were friends, you know, and I said, hi, how are you? I just want to tell you I've got some new music. I've got a new band. Would you be interested in hearing it? Oh, Cindy, it's so good to hear that you're okay now, that you're well, that you, you're clean. And I'm like, what is he talking about? Mm. I didn't know what he was talking about, and I found out afterwards that that was what happened. Very so, uncool. you know, just totally uncool. But also nobody had the foresight to say, my God, Cindy Alter is a force de majeure. Mm. Let's grab her and start recording with her. Let's do something. Nobody. So that, of course, makes you feel like you're worthless. So I'd already been feeling worthless because we'd just been financially abused. And Graham also played a little bit of the psychological game, like "Mm, put on a bit of weight, look a little chubby, those kind of things. And I would be hysterical and be on diet pills all the time because in case, God forbid, I put on a pound, you know.
0: You didn't lie down. You got up. I didn't up. You, lie down you, you, for long. No, and I you got up. up. I think it was Syndicate yes. was the next thing, wasn't it? So how did that come together?
1: Well, I just, I just met a new man in my life, and he was actually playing uh, drums with Hotline. Oh, Patrick! And he, he, yeah, Patrick. So yeah. Patrick had said to me listen, why don't you just do, go do, do some guest appearances with some bands just to keep some money coming in because I needed to obviously mm. start paying my rent. And um, so I started doing that, and I did a few plays. I would go to Durban and front the band. Like, like I'd be a, a guest feature, you know, mm. a guest artist, and I'd sing. Like I'd do a whole set, and I'd have substitutes and save me in the set as well and stuff. So I kept going. And then Chris Galakis <laughs> – who Clout had played in Durban Club Med when Chris was there, and Chris and I had had a brief little um, dalliance, but we were friends more than anything, Chris mm-hmm. and I. And he said, hey, I'm coming back from Durban. I'm bringing Joe Elves, and Pips is in Joburg. You've got Patrick could join, and me on bass. Why don't we put a band together? I'm like, cool, great, fantastic. And, of course, Chris's bands were always fantastic, always had the best sound. And so we started in Germiston, the Alex Hotel, (laughs) (laughs) two shows. It was fantastic. We really started getting a thing together. We started recording. We had some really good tracks. I think the band had a lot of potential. Um, Do you remember Kim Fowley? He used to manage the, the, runaways.
0: <laughs> the runaways. A tall, strange looking man. Very I strange. I have my own man. stories about Kim Fowley and Oh, tell did you. It.
1: Oh my god, we should talk about that one day.
0: wow well, yeah. I went on, on the town with him one night, so
1: You did, yeah, yeah. he's he's a he's a he's quite a character. He was, he's also yeah. Foster, yeah. apparently. What a character But, but he was
0: interested song. in your songs, wasn't he?
1: Yes. He called me out of the blue. Hi, Cindy. This is Kim Fowley. I'm huh? <laughs> Are you calling me from America? Yeah. And he would talk for an hour on the bloody mm-hmm. phone. It must have cost him a fortune. I'm very interested in you. You've just been in the biggest band in, that could have been the biggest band in the world. And I think you're a superstar and talking me up and all this stuff. And I want to hear your songs. And so I sent him some stuff and he was interested and he said, come to America. Let's record some of your songs. So I did that, Um, and when I came back, Patrick had left the band. Things weren't great there, and um, I just kind of, again, I just just lost the feel for what we were doing. I didn't see how we were going to move forward. And so Syndicate, they got Cindy Dickinson in the yeah. band. So it was still Syndicate, which was a good name. I chose that name. I thought it was a fantastic name because Syndicate, you know, yeah, sure. <laughs>
2: it's a good name.
1: So on we went. That's when Patrick said, let's, look, let's put the Cindy Alter Band together. Mm. And that started and that morphed into Zia.
0: Right. Now, there was Patrick was in there, Reggie Edwards, who used to be with Amiga Limited. Brilliant. Great, great bass player.
1: What a bass player, yeah. my God.
0: Ashley show I think.
1: Believe it or not, Cindy Alta's band started. Patrick, Danny Bridgens.
0: Oh, the guitar player, yeah. Taxi.
1: And I. So we started as a three-piece. Okay, Danny was playing bass, and that was us. Then Graham Clifford
2: joined mm-hmm.
1: us. And then we started moving. Then Danny left. Then Reggie joined. And then we started becoming, becoming, becoming. Graham was told to leave. He was naughty. And then Ashley joined. So Zia was that for quite some time. The beginning of Zia was Ashley and Reggie and me. And then we had our black singers and dancers as well.
0: Zia was was kind of a forerunner of what was to come you know the mixture it was, of it and, and
1: but nobody gave us any credit for that as well we were always put on the back burner
0: I find that strange because it was it was quite a unique mix of pop rock and Zulu and it's and exactly you know that. it was it. I mean you had a massive hit with Nobody Loves uh, Nobody Loves It it was a
1: fantastic song the right time. It was pop, but it was still vibey. I mean, then you know, eventually Zia started going to France. We did Mm. two tours to France. We opened for the Bee Gees.
0: Yeah, I remember that. It was
1: phenomenal.
0: But weren't you supposed to do a US tour with the Bee Gees?
1: We were meant to join the Bee Gees for their world tour. So it was 1989. We'd just done a big show called Franchement Zulu. It was a tour. It was Lucky Tube. It was Chico. It was... Um, Stimela, whole bunch of us in in France touring the summer tour. It was fantastic. Big venues, outdoor venues. Had the best time. And um, our promoter was promoting the doing the the BG show at the Bercy in Paris, big mm-hmm. sports arena. And he he said, "Do you think Zia would open for them? And we'd like." Well, of course, we would. <laughs> <laughs> And off we went, and my God, what a show it was. And the Bee Gees, I'm glad I didn't know, they were watching us. They were standing there watching us. And normally the the, the headliners in their room, they don't care about the lady opener. True. They watched everything. When we finished, they wanted to meet us, and Barry Gibb called me. He says, I want to talk to you. Come here. He says, you are the, one of the most magnificent singers I've ever heard in my life. I'm like, huh? Barry gives that I'm, I'm blushing because he's still handsome.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm yeah. so
1: blushing. And I'm like, oh, my God, my God, he's, you are fabulous. Anyway, we get back to South Africa. We get a fax from their management. Zia, um, to Zia, the BGs would like to extend an invitation to you for you to join us on our world tour in 1990. Now, how do you say no to that? Mm-hmm. Does anybody's. Benji, you're a record man, okay? You know the business. What record person, record company would say to an artist that you can't do it because we, we're not going to support you?
0: A South African record company.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I hear you. Gallo. Gallo. Uh, they wouldn't said, put the money out. Oh,
1: no, we can't afford to do that. Do you know how many records we would have sold, CDs we would have sold? Do you know what it would have done for the band?
0: So short-sighted. What it would
1: have done for South Africa, South African band opening for the Bee Gees World Tour.
0: So you you, you must have become so frustrated by that insular South African industry scene.
1: Disillusioned, completely disillusioned. I thought, foresight, none. Mm. Does nobody have any foresight here? What am I doing here? Mm. Why am I giving this my energy when it does not give me anything back?
0: Is that when you in your head decided that you wanted to go to America?
1: I'd wanted to go to America for a long time. Ever since the first time I went to be with Kim Fowley in those years, I thought, Jesus, this place got a vibe, man. Yeah. <laughs> and I was in Hollywood and L.A. I was loving the Joel, you know. Um, and I'd, I'd always wanted to, even since I was a young girl, when I was a young girl, um, I just had this thing about America. I don't know what it was, and that's the eighty nine. I just met a, a guy, not a boyfriend kind of guy. was a friend of somebody who lived in 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 L A. and He said, "Hey, if you ever want to come to America, you can come stay at my house. I've got this big house." And it wasn't like a funny thing. He wasn't mm-hmm. weird. He was just a nice bloke, and I said. Okay, cool. And that, when I got that news, I'll never forget it was September because it was the Rosh Hashanah, it was the Jewish New Year. And I was praying for that contract to come through. I was saying, This is our year. This is New Year. It's going to happen. We're going to, the record company is going to put us on this tour. And they said no. And I tell you, my heart actually stopped for a moment or two. I just went, that, to me, is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. And that was when I made my decision. Also, I had to get out of that relationship that I'd been in for all those years. It was mm. very toxic.
2: Mm. Mm.
1: And I had to kind of escape, you know. Um, and I made up my mind. I made my plans. I booked a ticket. And I knew when I was going to go. And I spent the first six months of 1990 working with a band called Street Talk and working with 909 at Spats I
0: remember on a Spats Monday night. <laughs> oh, my
1: God, did I have fun? <laughs> the best fun. Was that Street Mark was so band, hard. was it? Yes. Yes,
0: Mark Kahn's It was band. Mark.
1: But Mark used to play in the band that I played in before, just before I joined Zia. But just before Zia sort of, and Cindy Alter band, I played in a band called Chaos. Okay. And there was Mark Kahn. It was Kevin Kruger on drums. Oh, gee, it was gee. Johan Lass. Mm. Les Good. And we were playing Springs and all Plum crazy and all
2: those places, right?
1: If I tell you, did I have fun with those guys? Oh my God. I laughed and laughed till I peed. <laughs> I'm telling you, I used to
0: pee. Really so you go to America. <laughs> Which so can be a scary a place, place for an artist. Very scary if, for me. You know, I didn't know anybody. Yeah. I knew three people.
1: And funnily enough, just before I left, um, one night at Spats, Trevor Rabin was there, he was visiting. And he said to me, I said, I'm coming to L.A. He said, here's my number. Call me when you get to L.A. I'm like, cool. So there's one person I know. Mm-hmm. And the guy I'm staying with, who I don't know, but I'm hoping is a good guy. Mm-hmm. And then there was a friend of my sister's younger than me, she lived there, and I knew her because she'd grown up with my sister, and there was Bobby, Summerfield, and Magda. Right. (laughs) So I knew four people in L.A., (laughs) and I go to L.A. with two suitcases and my guitar, and within three weeks I had a band. (laughs) I was just, like, going for it, and I loved it, and I knew I wasn't going to come back.
0: And you spent quite a long time there, didn't you?
1: I spent 15 years in L.A.,
0: and you got I stayed married, there and you got from married,
1: 1990. Right? I did get married. He was my bass player in my band. Mm-hmm. And I'd sworn I would never get involved with anybody in my band before. And I broke my
2: own rule. I don't understand the way that some things work. Woman at your high, and then you're kicking dirt. One minute it's paradise, the next it's hurt. Tell me what's the cost? What's it worth? In a middle ground, it's a kid or a miss, ain't a winners and losers. It ain't Miss. Ain't yeah, no winners or
0: Did a couple of albums there while you were there, right? Yes. And, and yes, I did some solo stuff. I was some finally stuff. Yeah. becoming
1: a solo artist. And also it was lovely for me in L.A. Nobody knew me. So I wasn't Cindy. Oh, you're from Clout. Oh, you're from Zia. Mm. Oh, you that, you that. I was Cindy Alta for the first time in since I was 20.
0: And were you able to sustain yourself financially at that point? Yeah, I had By to play. work. Yeah, right. I right.
1: had jobs. I worked at different places and stuff. Just – It it didn't mean anything to me, but it was a means to an end. Mm. So my jobs were supporting my music career. And then you got sick. Yeah. So I was about to move to Nashville. Mm -hmm. I wanted to move to Nashville because I'd been there a few times, and every time I came here, I was like, I know this place is for me. I know it is. And the last time I'd gone on a little tour, it was 2002, My husband had come with me. He was playing with me because he played bass. And we did the Bluebird and a whole bunch of really cool places, hung out with Paul Zamek, of course, because he was my mate Mm -hmm. from all those years ago. And a guy at ASCAP loved my songs. He says, if you're living here, I think I could get you a publishing deal. Quick, quick. And I was like, okay. So we got back to L.A. I said to my husband, how about I go live there for three months, See if it works. If it does, we'll move there. He said, Mm. cool, perfect. And just as I was starting to make my plans, I got leukemia. And I was told I was dying. And they said, my my oncologist had said, look, if we can get you into remission on the first chemo, we're looking like we can move forward. And I was like, okay, so someone tells you you're dying. All you want to do is live. It's so like, bugger that, I'm not going to die. I'm not dying. <laughs> but I thought to myself, listen, we're all going to die eventually. That's like, it's a given, Yep. but it's how I live until I die. So how am I going to live until I die? I'm going to go for this. I'm going to try my best. And if I die, I do If I don't, I don't. And then it was that journey. And I had a bone marrow transplant in 2003. And... Uh, that's when I thought I was dying.
2: Do you want to laugh? Do you want to cry? Do you want to live? Do you want to die? Do you want to sing? Do you want to shout? Uh-huh. Are you going to crawl? Are you going to dance? Are you going to give love a second chance? Do you want to back down? Do you want to fight? Do you? Do you? Do you? There's been too much stuff. You gonna stand or you gonna fall? uh uh-huh. Is there a path?
0: What a moving um, episode in, in, in "No Substitute" in the book, and how you describe that journey. And I think I would urge people to read "No Substitute" because it's a great rock and roll journal of of, of a musician who's climbed a few mountains in her time. <laughs> uh, Thank
1: you for that. It is available on Amazon it, in Kindle
0: good. and in
2: hardcover. <laughs>
0: you did. Strangest thing, you came back to South Africa to uh-huh. do a Very clout reunion. Yeah, thirty so, years later, full on. I just
1: full on. I am. Um, I'm, I'm sitting in LA. I'm sick. I'm weak. I'm not well yet, and I'm thinking to myself, "What should I do? What should I do?" And funny enough, I was talking to Patrick. Mm-hmm. We'd be talking a little bit and trying to resolve all those years ago's kind of drama. Um, And he said, why don't you put Clark back together for a reunion? I was like, huh? And I thought about it and I thought, you know what? I don't want to start again here now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like now I've got to start getting gigs again and stuff and I'm not well. I've got to get work. I've got to get a job again and I'm not well enough. I'm not strong enough. And I thought, if I go back to South Africa, at least I'll get work on music work, as I did before, hopefully, where I don't have to get a day job and I can just work on music. I came back for a visit. I went to Chris Galakis. I'm like, Chris, what do you think of this? Let's do a crowd reunion. He goes, I'm in. I'll record it. Let's do it. So I had something to come back to, and it was very sad leaving L.A. because it was big for me. But I just said, look, this chapter is closed for now. I don't know when I'm going to be back, but right now this is what I need to do. And I went back to South Africa. And it was a good thing for me, Benji. It was good. It was a very successful tour. It was lovely. We had such a great time. We had fun, had sold-out shows. Everybody was just loving it. It was just the right time for that thing, you
0: know? The universe has a strange way of working and pointing (sighs) In a direction. You know, it tells
1: you to do things and you don't know, mm. and it's and then it tells you, "Hey, hold on, hold on, not ready yet, and you're like Arr! fighting the fight, and then suddenly it's ready you
0: you were doing solo shows in in Germany, right was that
1: Yes, so I did that later on yes yeah. um this guy in Germany, he was in a band called Jane. Which mm-hmm. was a pretty well known band in Germany. And he'd been always following me and telling me he was a fan and everything. He said, would you consider coming here for a little bit? And I had a friend who used to work, uh, he was in, in marketing and PR in South Africa. Um, Tim Hill. I know and Tim Hill said, yeah. I'm living in, I'm living in, in UK. Why don't you do a little tour? You can go to Germany and do UK. So I started doing that. And that was great as well. It was good for me. You know, and I did a big show in, in Belgium. There was a like a reunion show of all these old bands, Boney M and Loaf and just um, a whole bunch of guys. Billy.
0: And, you, you know, the thing about you is you never you never rest on your laurels. So all of a sudden up pops um, the Alter Irving band. Um, with your collaboration with Stuart Irving, who's also a great singer,
2: Stuart,
0: um, and, and fantastic it, 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 singer, it sounded great so natural country for you for country music. Mm, it was. Um, it was very. So, so I suppose all of those those uh, gigs that you did back in when you were a young girl with uh, with 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 Gibson and, so. and with Jody Wayne and all of those people probably probably set that thing down. Yes. Do you think your American experience informed your songwriting Mm. to moving into the country thing? And we're going to come to the national thing in, in a short while as well.
1: some country when I was very young, okay, so we know about that, Um, I was never like a full-on country singer. I would go more like a Linda Ronstadt, Emmylou Harris, um, Mm
0: -hmm. Stevie Nicks, you
1: know, that would be my thing. So I was never completely full-on twang, you know, the whole bluegrass, twangy kind of thing. Um, So I think that my songwriting was developing and becoming more Americana,
0: right. sure.
1: which is a genre here, um, and 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 just like that, slight bit of country, slight bit of
0: folk,
1: mm. maybe, and a little bit of rock. Uh,
0: I mean, modern country. I mean, country is is the new pop music, isn't it? I mean,
1: it is know. the new pop music for sure.
0: You also wrote a song, Back to Tennessee, which was pretty prophetic because a year and a half ago, you moved back to, to, to Nashville. What is it about Nashville? I don't know. You?
1: It just, um, when I came here the first time, I just walked in the streets and I walked down Broadway and I wanted to go into clubs and just say, can I play it? But I was so terrified, literally. I just walked around with my guitar on my back the whole night and I didn't play anywhere, but I thought I was kind of cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what I wanted to ask you about, and I and, and asked this about Trevor Rabin the other day, because I, I, I know you've co-written with him on his, on his new album, but I wanted to ask you the same question as I asked him. How does your writing <clears throat> process unfold? Are you one of those writers where you get a lick in your head, a line in your head? Oh. And you sit down and you mm-hmm. go, I like that. Let me craft that, because I think songs. I don't know if you agree or, on this, but songs are like <laughs> wild animals. Yes. You know, you you can't cage <laughs> They're them. They're gonna go their own you way. Know, you man. can't keep them in a cage.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so tell me, how does how does Cindy Alter's writing? I always get a line unfold? in my head.
1: Might have some words. Might just be no 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 no. You know. And I'm like, if I like this, the melody of it, I'll sort of mm. run with it a bit, and then I'd put it on my phone straight away. So even sometimes in the middle of the night, I wake up with a bloody line in my head, and I grab my phone. I'm like, morror, morror, morror. and the next day, I don't know what the hell I've done, <laughs> okay, but I try. <laughs> and then if it feels like a goodie to me, then I'll pursue it, and I'll get it on the phone, I'll sit with my guitar. I wrote... Uh, the newest song I've written by myself. I've been doing a lot of co-writes, which are great. I'm loving that.
2: Well, I've been sitting on the sofa On a Sunday afternoon Reading some old story In the National Tribune Chorus going by I can hear them as they pass I look outside my window As the sprinklers hit the grass And suddenly I'm thinking of what you didn't do And suddenly I realize That I'm not missing you Oh, you swore you love me Till the day you died, But you can't love anything Your heart is cold as ice I cannot forgive you Or forget what you have done Honey, I've been me since you've been smells like cigarettes and beer. Take these satin sheets, I don't want them anymore. Take your old bandana that was always on the floor. And just because I loved you, I let you in my
0: Co-writing, of course, is a big thing, isn't it? I mean, in national co-writing. Co-writing
1: here is very big. I mean, 95% of all hits are co-written here. They like it.
0: So it's like you go into a room, you go into a writing session, you're going in with a middle eight. They're coming Not even in with
1: necessarily. A, a line of a Sometimes chorus. Sometimes people come in with nothing. So
0: and you just sit I, and- I,
1: I, I did a co-write with a girl last week young girl. She's 22, pretty, she's got a really great soul voice. Yeah, so it was the first time we hooked up from some other woman that said, you know, my son did a song with this girl, she's really good, um, but she's got a really soulful voice. She's not a country girl, which is really nice. She arrives at my place, I said to her, have you got any ideas of what you want? She said, well, I'm just sort of feeling this and I'm feeling that, and we start... Talking, and suddenly I've got a line. I'm like, hold on, I'll pick up my guitar and I'll start playing and I've already got line one, line two, and then she adds something and then we we wrote the whole song together and we came up with something so good but it started with like a a kernel of an idea and then – Four weeks ago, I wrote to this other guy, fabulous. He's a really good writer, and he'd already had an idea. So I got in the room and he said, I've got this sort of idea of this chorus or like a verse-sounding thing. So he started playing it. So there we had something to work from. And then last week was mm-hmm. like, oh, I've just got an idea of a, a, a word, a line. Like I want to talk about how I feel about blah, blah. So I think co-writes are very subjective. You know, you never know what's going to come out of it. And sometimes it just goes, oh, it's like dragging a bloody dead horse up a hill. And then I know, oh, that's a tough one. You know, it might not work.
0: It's a real craft, isn't it? I mean, songwriting. It's
1: a craft and it's a a passion thing as well. It's like, do you feel it? Do you really feel this? Because I can't. I mean, I can write about, oh, he loves me and I love him and we're going to get married and have children. I'm sure I can write that stuff if I'm told to. Hey, we want a song like this and I'll write you a beautiful song like that. That's not where I come from. I like to write about gritty
2: stuff, deep stuff. I've been looking for answers in the strangest of places. I don't know how I'm going to survive. There's a bird by the window, looks like he's barely alive My daddy's been mining for 45 years His fingers are stained with blood, sweat, tears There's a God up there somewhere, guess he's just biding his time been a cold winter on the Winchester County line Serve my soul Make me whole I'm in deeper than I know Take this chance off my feet and just give me peace My sister loves hard
0: more than you know, she's given her heart and give how, how did the co writer Trevor come about?
1: When I arrived in LA, Trevor and I, he had a song that he'd already um, had backing to. Um, he'd written this whole big thing, and in the 90s, it was the big guitar, sort of big sounding thing, and um, he didn't have lyrics or a melody. And he said, take this track and just see what you can do with it. And I wrote a fantastic song and we recorded. It was an amazing song, brilliant. It would have been perfect for Celine Dion, that kind of song. And he said, wow, great song. Um, then he said, hey, let's do an album. I'm like, of course. Who mm-hmm. says no? So mm-hmm. we started working on an album. And we'd written, I think, three songs. And he called me, said, look, I have to stop working on the album because I've just gotten my first movie and I'm, I'm scoring a movie and I'm going to be in, in my studio for the next six months or whatever. Hmm. Of course I was disappointed. You know, you just go, Oh, well, another opportunity to the wind and you move on because you do. That's what we do. We just keep going and, um, (laughs) what? 1992 to 2003, 30 years, what, 20 mm-hmm. years,
2: 30
1: years. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a phone call from Derek, his brother, about two year, a year and a half ago or so. Cindy, um, Trevor's going to record, he's starting to record a new album, a solo album, and it's going to be lyrics and, and, and songs because sometimes he's done instrumentals. This is going to be songs. Sure. And um, he wants to use the one song that you guys wrote. And I'm like, no, he's not loud. <laughs> of course I say yes. <laughs> it's like, yeah, um, he is changing a lot of it. He's going to change the chorus of birds. He's going to do things. Will you take this? And I'm like, cool, I'll take that. It's fine. So about Four weeks ago, I get a message from a friend of mine in Australia who always sends me the latest thing, anything about South African musicians that release anything. She's like, oh, look at this, look at that. And it's Trevor Abbot's got a new album out. I'm like, hmm, okay, I wonder if he's got that song on there. <laughs> so I'm like,
0: Derek.
1: <laughs> anyway, the next thing I get an email from Trevor, son, give me your phone number, let me call you. And he calls me, he says, listen, I've used the song, and it's going to be on my album.
0: How brilliant. <laughs> it's great. Again, the universe it's showing you something. Nuts,
1: Benji, like, what does that mean? 30 years later? It's crazy. So a song is a song. You know, it can be lying in the universe for 10 years. Ever. Somebody sure. can pick it. And I sure. think I, I haven't even heard it yet. I don't know what he's done with it. I know okay. he's changed it, but I'm hoping to hear it soon. And I'm going to send him a message. Chef, can I hear the song?
0: <laughs> What's it called? Is it Egoli? Egoli.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. Because so he's promised the, to send me a copy of the album. So
1: is he going to? Oh, well, I hope so. Yeah,
0: well, uh, you know, I hope he sends me a
1: copy. I hope so too. I think as a co writer, I should get a copy of the album. I love
0: <laughs> Here you are. 2023, um, you've had this amazing career, this amazing journey, this life, and you keep moving forward. You're now in Nashville. Yeah. What are you doing in Nashville? What are you doing there? What What, what, what are you working there? I'm working. I'm living my dream
1: because this was my dream to go to Nashville. Um, I uh, I wanted to go for a long time, and every time I decided to go. I changed my mind said, no, not right time, not right time. Then I decided to go and then COVID hits. And I'm like, oh, God. And COVID finishes and I'm like, well, it doesn't finish, but it sort of dies down a bit. And I'm suddenly like, you know what, Cindy, you're going to be turning 65 next year. If you don't go now, you're not going to go. And I'm like, bugger it, I'm going. (laughs) And that's when I decided to come here. So, I also knew I had some certain things in my head. Like, I knew I had to get a, a good job, something decent that wasn't going to tax me, as in exhaust me. I'm not going to do anything that some 20 year old's going to try and do. I'm not interested. I want to do something that's good for me, that's going to work for me, and that's going to support my music career. I started working for Live Nation for a while. They've got so many different things and they've got this one um, amphitheater here called Ascend and they need people to help there and usher and show people to their seats and do all kinds of different things there. So I got involved with that and I worked at Ascend for like the whole summer season. It was amazing because I got to see Stevie Nicks and Brandy Carl and Alicia Keys and Sting and sticks,
2: sticks.
1: (laughs) I just got, I mean, and Oreo Speedwagon. I mean, I got to see incredible, incredible artists just standing around doing my job. And then I, I just sort of fiddled around with a few things and then I applied. I heard that somebody was looking for somewhere at this agency. This agency was called APA. This is a talent booking agency. So they've got artists like They've got actors like Jason Momoa, big actors. They've got artists like Billy Joel. They had Elton John. They've got Mary J. Blige, 50 Cent, big, big artists. And they needed an office manager. I said, that's exactly what I am. I'm an office manager. (laughs) So I sit here. I make sure everything's filled out. I make sure everybody's got what they need. I'm chilled. And then I go off to my gigs. And I go off to my songwriting sessions,
0: and, you write, and, you and I write, write songs. My
1: songs, and I play. I do quite a lot of songwriter nights, and I had—I've got a band, and I—I I did a fantastic show at the City Winery recently, and it's a really beautiful venue. It's a big venue, and it's just moving along nicely. People are getting to hear about me; um, my name's getting around. I'm making my own little waves in my way. living, living your dream,
0: dream isn't that wonderful?
1: I think we're all trying to find it. We, I think we all think we know who we are. And then you get to an age like I am at and I'm still like, geez, I'm learning so many new things about me. I guess that's the mystery of life that you never really, really know yourself that you think you do, but you don't. Because you do things that at later in life you never would have done maybe 10 years ago.
0: Book, no substitute, a tell-all account of her life and career. It's quite a naked very, book. It's very, yeah. I've got to tell you, I, I've now really? read it twice. Wow. Um, yeah, I read it again because I wanted I w- I wanted to kind of understand more fully the mm. journey. Um, that's available on Amazon Books and Kindle. It's available as a mm-hmm. physical book, which I love. You have an album, out, One Standing, The Essential Collection, which has got some of your clout hits, some yes. of your solo stuff. So also available mm. everywhere, uh, on vinyl too, yes, if you come to Vinyl it <laughs> um, <laughs> And it's a Vinyl at it your shop. <laughs> Absolutely. Cindy Alter, my friend, what a wonderful conversation with you. I thank you so much for spending some time with me wow. on From the Hip.
1: And I've just actually, I've started a new album, just to let you know quickly. I've started oh, good. a new album called it Nashville. I've got three tracks on the album. It is available all online. It is, I'm going to send them to you via email just so that you've got them. And that's um, part of my new journey of writing the songs that I want to write here.
0: Thank you, Cindy. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.
2: When you do that thing, when you walk the walk and swing that swing. I loved when you just let go. Don't worry what people say, what the world expects from you today. I loved when you just don't care. Cause everyone's a winner, and everyone's a loser. It's Slack just like rain Another day in paradise Or another day To live your life It's just a crazy game And all the things you dream of And all the things you need Are out in the distance Just around the bend And it's okay It's alright, there are angels watching.